0: I'm Mitchell Kaplan, and you're listening to The Literary Life. We're now part of Lithub Radio, which can be found at lithub.com or on any other platform where you listen to your podcasts. My guest today is Carl Merlantis. Carl graduated from Yale University and was a Rhodes Scholar at Oxford before serving as a Marine in Vietnam, where he was awarded the Navy Cross, the Bronze Star, two Navy Commendation Medals for Valor, two Purple Hearts, and ten Air Medals. He's the best-selling author of Matterhorn and What It Is Like to Go to War. He lives in rural Washington state. But his new novel is Deep River. Set in the early decades of the 20th century among Finnish immigrants in Washington state, Carl's second novel seems a drastic shift from Matterhorn, his acclaimed 2010 debut based on his experiences as a Marine in Vietnam. Yet Deep River was also sparked by a personal link. And this book is a bestseller already. It's being hailed by booksellers and everyone alike all over the country. And there's one particular quote, By a bookseller that I've come to love and know and I've known for years, and that's, I'm sure Carl, you know him too, and that's Johnny Evans at Lemuria Bookstore in Jackson, Mississippi. And this is what Johnny writes about Deep River, and he captures it so well. And it was sort of like my experience. You'll want to go home every night to read Carl Morlantis' Deep River as the characters of the Kosky family develop with ease and settle into your consciousness. Deep River immerses you into the sometimes harsh world of an immigrant family with nuance and sensitivity, capturing the American spirit with the power of Steinbeck's Grapes of Wrath. Carl Morlantis has written a masterpiece, the classic American novel. Welcome to the Literary Life, Carl. Thank you. Thank you very much. So when it's written that there's a personal link, which was very clear in Matterhorn, and there's a personal link here in Deep River. Tell me about that personal link. Well, it's you know it's set in logging camps
1: at the turn of the last century, and I grew up in a logging town, so I know logging really well because uh, that's what everybody did there, unless they were commercial fishing for salmon, which is what my grandfather did, and that's in the novel as well, and I, I fished with my grandfather when I was all through high school, uh, so I know that part of it really well. My relatives were loggers and fishermen. My grandmother, who was an ardent communist, uh, the the Finns who came over here were very socialist. And uh, so I have, you know, a lot of sort of uh, stories from her and one that I just thought of. I mean, I, I live in a little town, a little logging town called Seaside, Oregon, about 15 miles south of Astoria, which is right on the Columbia River where uh, my grandfather fished. When I used to go visit grandma, uh, on the kitchen table would be what I thought was the uh, local Astoria newspaper, which was called the Daily Worker. <laughs> <laughs> I had no idea, you know. And I, and I always laugh because because I have, a you know, this sort of people think, oh, communists, and, you know, we're sort of – socialized about bolshevism and radical and terror and my grandmother you know made cookies and pies and you know i mean and she was a communist and so i have a little bit different view of it i understand the dark side but uh, anyway it's interesting that's my that's the kind of personal links i have well t-
0: i mean i remember uh, reading somewhere uh, a story about uh, you hearing uh the john baez song oh yeah the joe hill exactly. song talk about yeah, that a little. um
1: well, you know, my my grandmother was also a, a member of the uh, IWW, also known as the Wobblies, the industrial workers of the world. And uh, she was a very low level, uh, but nothing like my character I know, but uh, who I romanticized much more. But uh, she was a, a Wobbly. And when I came back from college back in the day, uh, Joan Baez had this song about Joe Hill, who was a famous Wobbly you can't call him an organizer. He was kind of a person that was, he was a fabulous song parodist and he would, he would be at rallies and wrote songs that helped IWW members with, with, you know, morale and everything. I mean, solidarity forever and uh, there'll be pie in the sky when you die. And he would sit that to common tunes. So her song about Joe, it was, um, I dreamed I saw Joe Hill last night, alive as you and me. So I came home and, uh, Grandma, did you know Joe Hill? And she took a step back and she looked at me and she went, that son of a bitch. (laughs) And I was like. This is a '60s icon, and here's my <laughs> right. my little five foot four grandma. What grandma? And here's her story. She said that you know she worked helping organize, and one of the issues was to get men to carry the red card, which was the IWW membership card. Now, if you were caught with this card, you were fired. I mean, it was not like today. I mean, you know, you were fired, and not only were you fired, but you were put on a blacklist. So if you tried to get a job anyplace else. You couldn't. I mean, you had to literally move across the country, change your name if you wanted to work again. So holding the red card was an act of uh, bravery. And- uh she said that they would work so hard to get these guys to do it, because it was also union dues. It's what they paid, I think, five dollars a year or something. They would make have this rally, and the, the IWW leadership would bring Joe Hill in from someplace, and she said he'd come in, and, and cops would show up from all over the county, standing around. People are terrified. Joe Hill sings a bunch of songs he leaves, red cards torn up all over the ground, two years of organizing, down the drain) <laughs>
0: That is amazing. A, I, there's a story because it's a that, whole different view. It's the view of what really happens as yeah, opposed it, to mythology. Exactly, yeah, exactly. So, so tell me how you take this character of your grandmother and how and which character does she sort of morph into? Yeah, She's, She morphs into Aino, who is the principal female
1: character in the novel because of certain things, but I don't want to give away the book, but that happened in her childhood. Uh, they grow up under very oppressive Russian... Uh, rule. I mean, Finland belonged to Russia in in the day before 1917. And uh, so she's quite radicalized. And uh, her brothers had the same tragedy happen to them. And each of them takes a different attitude. And I'm sort of playing with it's almost like this Kierkegaardian sort of attitude toward life, the the aesthetic and the you know the the ethical and the religious, and she takes the idea that there is no God. We're going to have heaven on earth if we just organize, and we're going to be able to have a workers' paradise if we get rid of class structures. And she was a communist, you know. So Ayno was a strong communist, and in that sense, uh, she's related, uh, you know tentatively to my grandmother because my grandmother's idealism. And uh, it suffered because, uh, and I know she talked about it a little bit, how she came over as a young girl. She was 16 when she came here. And then she watched the, you know, Stalin. And and it was like, that was kind of a wall. And I another story I remember. I'm in the kitchen and my mother and my grandmother are yapping away in Finn. And Grandma didn't she didn't like to speak English because she said Finn was perfectly good language. There's no reason to speak another one. So they're at the kitchen table and the daily worker is on the table. Bang, she puts her hand down on it, slaps it, and she says, That's the last straw. And but a couple of years later, I asked my mother, I said, What 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 was, Grandma I said, what was the last straw? She said, That's when she quit her subscription to the Daily Worker, because that's when the Russians invaded Hungary to put down the Hungarian revolution and it was so I saw this idealism being completely sort of always undermined and tested and one of the strategies that happened in my little town in what was in Astoria which is where my grandmother lived in the mid-30s about a hundred Finns sold everything and took their kids and moved to Russia because it was the the workers paradise they believed it, it was heaven on earth and they disappeared. I mean, it was horrible. Some people have done some research into what happened to this movement back to Russia. They went to the horrible camps and they were their families were split up. It was Saul and Beria, I mean, s- sadistic, cruel people, but the, they were stars in their eyes. They sold everything and, and went back.
0: Sorry. <laughs> you know, so well, I, I live, I have you, stories of you that. You have actually. stories like that, but it's also interesting that your grandmother was not di- uh, dogmatic, that she no. kept her idealism with her the whole time. So when she saw wrong, she yeah, reacted absolutely. against she it. She did.
1: And, and one of the things I do laugh about is I, when I was going to Vietnam, you know, I'm in my Marine uniform and I have to say goodbye to grandma, you know, and she looks at me and says, I don't know why you're going over there and fighting for Wall Street millionaires.
0: (laughs) (laughs) How old was she then? She she was probably 80 something then, you know? Yeah,
1: I know. That's really great. The thing is, is that I went, well, I don't know. But now I'm beginning to think maybe she was right, you know?
0: (laughs) Well, you know, it's interesting. I I introduced you to my 90 year old father just a little while ago, and he was an old union lawyer who, Mm -hmm. at the age of 91, has maintained that same. Vigilance well, yeah, yeah. about his own sensibility yeah, about sure. that. So there was something probably in the water back then. <laughs> that, well, you know, that, that that's there, there was there was such there was so so much injustice that people yes, would see. I think that we are so soft.
1: We have no idea of the shoulders we stand on. I mean, just just the fact that you can join a union and not get fired. I mean, something as simple as that. And uh, my great uncle uh, Yuka Pavala, <laughs> I love these names. He, he told me a story. That uh, of his first strike, they worked from dark till dark, and it rained, and it was miserable weather. He was Northwest. a logger. He was a logger, and uh, what they wanted, they slept on straw in the bunkhouses, just on flat boards. There would be three bunks of just boards, and then they threw straw on it. To and the straw would get wet and damp, and there'd be vermin in it, and it would smell, and and you know, uh, bed bugs. I mean, it was terrible stuff. And they wanted a, a some. They wanted clean straw. And they wanted uh, a guy to get off a half an hour early so he could start the fire so that when the rest of the loggers came into the bunkhouse, they could get their clothes dry and they could be warm when they came inside. They had to go on strike to get that. They had to go on strike. Wow. So today we we have no idea the risks that they took and, uh, yeah, the hardship. They were making a dollar a day and they were dying, you know, because there was – They had to put food on the table, so I really admire them.
0: Tell tell, tell so many of us that don't have firsthand experience with what you experienced growing up, give us a little bit of a flavor, and you should read Deep River if you really want a flavor of it, but tell us about what you admire in those early settlers, in those loggers who came over, lived a very rough life. What yeah. what was it that you well, saw? As a yeah, young man? I mean,
1: it, it's not wasn't just then. I mean, when I was growing up, a little tiny town, there were sixty kids in my class. Five of my friends' fathers died in the woods. Cables go flying around, logs roll. You know, I mean, it's it's dangerous, dangerous work. I think it's the most dangerous profession. Fishing comes next. Um, and back in the day, these people, you know, five foot ten inches tall, they're they're cutting by hand axe and hand saws, cross cuts, trees that are 14, 16 foot in diameter. And uh, again, uh, one of my great uncles who logged back in the day said it, sometimes it took him a, two days to get the tree down and bucked. I mean, that means cut to length. Right. Two days of work. And uh, when I was researching the book, uh, a woman had analyzed the inputs of and outputs of a, of a typical mess hall dining hall at a logging camp and she figured out that the average logger burned 16,000 calories a day. Oh, my. God. I mean, okay, that's Michael <laughs> Phelps level, right? Yeah, I know exactly. Because they worked constantly so ch- 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 yeah. hour after hour after hour in the cold, in the rain to put food on the table. I mean, you know, I mean, it was uh, very brave and, uh, uh, you know, heroic even. But the irony no more old growth forests. Right. I mean, what an irony uh, that heroism has left us with nothing. Yeah. And uh, and I I know they didn't think twice about it. I mean, right. you know, there was there was no environmental consciousness. Right. My, my no they were just trying to right. make a living, and they came from poverty, right. so they just they saw the woods.
0: In so originals. so what happened in the town when you were there when you were when you were growing up when the town was. Oh well, when I mean, it, it was, was when it was it was, it was, the, it, the was the growth wasn't, it was booming. It was booming. Yeah, know? it was old growth.
1: Was uh, old this growth. is I grew up in the fifties and early sixties. Right. I was in high school in the sixties, and uh, now your father was a, a high school. Yeah, but to my chagrin, he was he was the was high a school principal. Principal, yeah. I mean, he right. was a, he was a, he he was a school teacher. He went to he he, he was a World War II veteran. and he drove across the mountains to get his degree to teach, and then it ended up being the principal when I went to high school. It was like oh, God, I, I, I got the, the ignominy <laughs> of that? You know, but no, I mean, when I was in, I can remember being in grade school and feeling the floor tremble as the log trucks went by. Right. One log. They couldn't carry more than one log. Today, they carry 35 or 40, same size truck. And they would roar through town because they got paid by the load. They didn't get paid by the hour. And they were, no one got in their way. And, and, uh, you know, everybody basically worked in the woods or, or supported people that worked in the woods. That's that was the town's economy, and uh, so I definitely grew up, uh, you know, around that sort of old growth. Uh, I think that the the peak cut in Clatsop County, which is the county at the very northwest end of Oregon, uh, was in 1972. That was the peak. That was the peak. So because the as the early loggers had to log near water. You had to get the logs, and these are big logs. I'm not kidding you. I mean, you, you, right. you, it's hard to imagine. People think that the guy on the cover is a child. <laughs> that's not a child. That's yeah. a full-grown man no, because the course. log is so big. But where was I going with this? Um, yeah, the, 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 the logging. The peak yeah, growth that's right. And what happened is that as, they, as technology increased, uh, changed, chainsaws, I mean, instead of two days to take a tree down, two hours, one hour. I mean, and then uh, railroad logging and then high lead logging, and then helicopter logging. You could get further and further into the hills and into the forest to get the wood out. And so we, we kept cutting old growth because we kept changing technology and we could keep getting it out. And then it wasn't like another industry where you tailed off. It was gone. <laughs> and it, it, it's like, and I often wondered if economists have some way of trying to figure the value of something because there's a whole. bunch, they left. I, when I was a kid, they would leave spruce in the woods if it didn't have 12 grains to an inch. Hmm. That's guitar top quality. Right. But they said, no, nah, no carpenter would touch that stuff. Be- and the house I live in is uh, the walls are made of not free vertical grade Douglas fir. It was cheaper than sheetrock. Because it was so much of it, of course. But then it was gone, and now. So, what's the value of that? See, and and there's no way that supply and and demand. What's happened to to
0: those towns now?
1: Well, basically, my town became a tourist town. It's got a wonderful beach. Right. and uh there's you know there's still a little logging, a little fishing, it's nothing like it was before, so they become retirement communities. Astoria is becoming a retirement community, beautiful old Victorian houses that were going for a hundred thousand dollars uh now they're way more expensive, but in the nineties people discovered these towns where there was no work. Well, sure. if you have a check coming from you know the government or a pension, then you move in, so it became tourist and retirement communities yeah.
0: so for those who haven't read the book yet, give, give us a little sense of the scope of the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, when does it start? You take the you take the family all the way through what?
1: Yeah, there's a there's an early incident which is actually is sort of almost a, an introduction to the story that starts in 1892 in Finland. The story of of uh, the family, the brothers, and Aino, really begins around nineteen three, where when she becomes radicalized and then gets involved in the first failed revolution against the Russians, and it, she emigrates to America, and then it goes through nineteen thirty two, and uh, uh, the co op era, uh, the beginning of the Great Depression, World War One. That time period,
0: and, and I and I really do think, and it's not an overstatement to make the comparisons to *Grapes of Wrath*. It's of a, it's it's of a different a different place and a different a different community. But it it's deeply American and yeah. deep. It tells the story of this the history of this country and, and the the hard scrabble mm-hmm. folks. Who not only that, but didn't re- give up the recurring
1: recurring issues, immigration. Um, these we still deal with immigration. What isn't an American? I mean, when do you stop speaking old country language, as we called it, and uh, and just start speaking English, or when do you change your name from
0: you know Ilmery to Elmer? I right. mean, you know, that kind of stuff was well, going
1: on even back then
0: this this leads me to something and and I'd love you to talk about it that um you use Finnish mythology very masterfully in this novel. Mm, thank you, just man. the way you use mythology. Masterfully, and Matterhorn as well. Um, what is it that you, f- why is mythology, how do you, why do you find mythology to be such a useful tool? Yeah. Which infuses your work. Well, this is my view of mythology. Uh, it, it is
1: not, not original to me, but it, it a, a myth is like a culture's dream. And dreams are important to, explaining and understanding what's going on in your individual psyche or in an individual culture. And these myths, these stories, are the ones that stuck stuck with us. The others have been pruned away. Now there's a reason why this this symbolism is important and stays with it. We may not know the reason, but we still keep it. I mean there's and so it reverberates, in my opinion, in the unconscious of everybody that is associated with it, including all the readers, and so I'm, and I'm very much interested. If I'm using a symbol in my in my literature, that it reaches a person at as deep a level as possible, and the use of the mythology does do that. It 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 does, in fact, uh, I guess you could say trigger similar feelings and imagery. Because it's all part of the same big psyche. I'm very much into Carl Jung and the collective sure. unconscious and and all that. And uh, Joseph Campbell is very important to my reading, and and so the, for that reason, I I like to use mythology because I I have a story to tell, but I want to I want it to reverberate at a very deep level so that there's some kind of feeling when you walk away from it. I mean, you, you, religious ceremonies, I mean, you know, whether it's a synagogue or the mass or whatever it is, if you just do the words, yeah, well, whatever. But when you walk away from it, if you've been paying attention, you have a feeling. There's a feeling that reverberates in you. Now, that is, that is right brain stuff. There, you, can't, you can't verbalize that. You can't write it in a novel. But the use of the mythology is able to reach a person at that level, sure. and uh, it's beyond
0: words. And and the book that you refer to of Finnish mythology is the, and I don't know if I'm going to pronounce it correctly. <laughs>
1: Go for it. It's called the
0: Kalevala. The Kalevala. Yeah. The Kalevala. The Kalevala. And that, Kalavala. Is, that, that is the book that... Encapsulates. Yes, it's a. It's actually a lot of Finnish. Patrol. Yeah, it's
1: actually a, a very interesting story because it was very important to finish independence. Um, there, there was a man named Elias Longrot who was a Finn, but he was a Swedish-speaking Finn. About fifteen percent of Finns speak Swedish because it belonged to Sweden for a long time before the Russians beat the Swedes and then you know took it over. Um, he was a doctor, and as a young doctor, the Russian government would assign you to districts that no one wanted to go to. And Kalava is a district in the very far east part of Finland. And when he arrived there, mid 1830s, and I actually saw this. I saw two old men. Uh, they they would grab each other. They would link each other's arms and look in each other in the eye and sing songs to each other. And you couldn't tell whether there was a duet or a contest. I mean, you know, they were because they were just fierce, singing each other's, looking in their eyes, linked. And he and he began to listen to these songs and start to, you know, record the words. And he began to understand that the songs had similar characters. And so he began to see that these old songs, which are pre-Christian, they'd been there for a long time. And modern scholars think that they were probably left from very powerful shaman that, that got into the into the history of, of and and then into then into the mythology. And it's very important because it's very Finnish. Um, the Finns don't have Indo-European pantheon. They're not an Indo-European speaking people. They have more like Native American spirituality. There's river gods and wind spirits and shaman. Which are in this in this and book. deep river and, and deep river refers to refers, refers to this. I mean, each of my my characters, in fact, refer to characters in the Kalavala. And the
0: title itself seems w- to be well, a it, 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 it does. To that.
1: Deep river is 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 more sort of involved in in the sense of the big the Columbia River and rivers and salmon. Right. And, and again, I'm using it to just evoke a feeling. And uh, I also kind of like the, the just a nice title. I mean, well, there's a wonderful spiritual. I think it's called Deep River, um, and uh, so that that became. He wrote him down, and and uh, it was very important to Longfellow. I mean, the Song of Hiawatha uses the meter of that. Da 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 wow. da, da by the shores of Gitchigumi. The Kalevala's uh, got that same kind of meter. In fact, a lot of Norse myths have that meter, and. Um, What happened is that Finns began naming their children after these characters in the Kalevala. And the Russians were trying to stamp out the Finnish language, they were called Russification. uh, And so you couldn't deal with the government, you couldn't do business with the government. If you did it in Finnish, they would force you to do it in Russian. Well, this was a truly Finnish epic. It's like the Tain for the Irish. It's like uh, um, the Song of Roland for the French. And so it became a very important part of the Finnish resistance and national character building. There was no nation. There's never been a Finland until 1917. There were Finns, right. but there was no Finland. And Sibelius, uh, much, much of his songs are are Kalevala based songs.
0: Boy, it's so fascinating. Yeah, it's really interesting. So stuff, really, you know? really, really interesting. And um, and and it's interesting to see what infuses Deep River. You know, I mean, and it comes with that background that you bring to it. You know what's also very interesting is that your novels are long. You write <laughs> I've very <been> told that. <laughs> long novels. Yeah. What challenges, if any, do you find in writing fiction that seems to be over six hundred pages? <laughs> well, first of all, everybody says it's hard to sell. You're the bookseller. Uh, it's been this has been very easy to sell. <laughs> really, that's right? and nice Matterhorn. To hear. Yeah. As well. Yeah. So yeah. But you're, but people you're the exception are to the uh, well. Rule. I
1: think first of all, maybe to get it public, I mean, Matterhorn took thirty five years before anybody would read it. Because on the query letters, you are supposed to say how long it is. And Matterhorn <laughs> well, was about six hundred and fifty pages, and people would say, "I can't." I mean, you know, unknown writer, fiction about a war that no, everybody hates. Oh, come on, you know. So there's that problem. There's just the marketing problem. But it's, it's well, there's a great right.
0: story about about your editor and publisher, Morgan Intrikian. Oh, you know that when story. you yes. hand it in. Yeah, uh, that's right. You, okay, tell I love me about that. that. I love, I that. That, I love that, that, that story. That's right.
1: So. So I'm I beating my butt against the, the deadline, right, you know, and I'm working away and working away. And uh, This is a mi- deep river. This right? is a deep river. Right. And uh, I missed the first deadline. And, and then Morgan says, you got to get it in by this. So I get it in. 350,000 words, okay? Now, Deep River is about 220,000. And Matterhorn is about 212,000. So they're, those are roughly the same size. 350,000 words is a big book. And I send it in. And there's a total silence from New York, uh, two weeks total, four weeks, eight weeks, 10 weeks of total silence. I'm going like, what is going on? You know, and I finally got a six word email from Morgan. He's my editor and he, and he runs Grove. Great stuff. Too much of it. <laughs> and I told Morgan, no, I told no, but Morgan. You, That's right. You I said, said something. Anna Karenina. Morgan is three hundred fifty-one thousand words, and he just looks at me and he says, "Carl, I could never sell Anna Karenina <laughs> today." You know. know, is that true too? I don't know. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, I, he, think Morgan, said, anything, maybe, I think Morgan, Morgan can sell anything. Maybe,
0: but what you also was was implying, and you ain't Tolstoy, Marlanis, so <laughs> this is going to be hard. You know? <laughs> no, but I remember the enthusiasm that he gave to all of us when he read Matterhorn. So Mm -hmm. he was the guy to take that, and he turned it on to independent booksellers all over the place. He did. He's marvelous. And he said, this is a big book, but you guys are going to love it, and you're going to sell it. And he was absolutely right. Yeah. No,
1: he's been – I'm so lucky. I mean, it's sort of those gifts from the garbage. I mean, 35 years of rejection slips, and then I land on my feet with Grove Atlantic, and they are a true – Lover of
0: books. So I let's mean, talk about the line that drew you to become a writer. Oh yeah, you you left the small town, mm-hmm. and I love the story that you've told about how you ended up at Yale. Why don't you talk about that a <laughs> yeah, little okay. bit? Yeah, it
1: is it is sort of. So in my town, I mean, if you went to work in the woods, you were making you know thirteen dollars an hour setting chokers. I mean, that's today like sixty dollars an hour. I mean. And I, friends of mine would go, like, Carl, why would you go to college? What would you do that? You know, I mean, it's crazy. You know, you have to pay money to do that. You know? And uh, so maybe about six or eight kids from my class went to college. And uh, so, you know, I but I always was going to go to college. And uh, my... Uh, my brother came home from Oregon State. He was an all-state football player, and he played with Tommy Prothrow. He was a good quarterback. He's your older brother. He's my older brother. Yeah, sort of like my idolized older brother. And... uh, uh he said to me, he says, well, where do you think you're going to go to college? And I said, oh, you know, uh Oregon State's still running single wing offense. And, uh, and you know. you were a football player. I was player, a football too. player. Yeah. And I said, and Oregon's into a T. Now, I think that the single wing suits my style. I mean, that's a, see, that's where my head was. My head was <laughs> what, what football uh system was being run at these universities. And uh, he said to me, he says, well, you know, he says, you got to think about Going back east, I think you might get bored. You know, you're pretty smart. You know, what about those schools back east? And I went, yeah, well, I don't know, whatever, you know. And uh, the National Merit Scholarship Test came up about two weeks after this conversation. And on the end of the test, it said, if you win, where would you want to go to college? And I literally would have written down, if it hadn't been for my brother, Oregon, Oregon State, and (laughs) Linfield. So I went, ah, well... Yale, Harvard, and Stanford. And that's what I – so I won. And I got accepted to all three of them, you know. And it was just like, yeah, I mean, your life changes so dramatically because of a a comment by somebody. And then
0: you went on to Yale. You played football there. I did. As well as rugby, right? Yes, I did, yeah. And then you got a Rhodes Scholarship. Rhodes Scholarship, right. (laughs) And – what did you study there? What was your? I studied economics. You did. Yeah,
1: I can remember the night. I loved literature, obviously, but I can remember that you the the last minute before you had to choose your major. I'm sitting there's about two in the morning, and I was like, "How am I going to make a living?" You know, with an English literature degree. Um, I'm still trying to figure that out. I way. know, yeah. I could, I, I'm no good at small. I couldn't start a, a, book, a bookstore like you've done. So so I went into economics, and, uh, and that's, that has served me in good stead. I straightened a lot of my kids' teeth with that economics <laughs> degree, and, and I was in corporate work and business for myself. You know? But
0: you had always harbored this always desire. Always harbored this desire. So you, to always, write. you always harbored a desire. Oh, to write. yeah. I mean, you so know. So who were you reading in those days? Which were the influences on you? W-
1: way back. Yeah. Uh, Yates, uh, because of my the local librarian, Mrs. Whitty, she would uh, uh, send away. She'd talk to me, and she'd send away to the book. There was something called the bookmobile, and she would write a letter to Salem and say we want to bring in. And she gave me the Celtic Twilight by Yates, and you know, and I was into uh, you know Doctor Zeus. And uh, you know, McGillicuddy's Pond. I this this only really saw it young. when I was really young, when I was yeah. eight or something like that. Uh, and w- when I was when I was older, I mean, I loved science fiction. I mean, Isaac Asimov and uh, Heinlein, and you know. Uh, all, all that that wonderful science. So fiction. Read, you're, I you're, read you just everything. Just read whatever, whatever. Was oh there, yeah, I did. Which I is
0: how writers, how readers develop. Well, you know, to it's, be able to read whatever. There's a wonderful. Captures your yeah, mind.
1: there's a wonderful but, thing. I, I I I read this. Uh, Miles Davis was talking to somebody, and they said, "How do you become a great jazz musician?" And Davis looked at this guy, and he said. Listen, listen, listen. How do you become a great writer? Read, read, read. I mean, that's it, that's the deal, you know. And so, so you got to so do. So while
0: it. you were in the corporate world, were you writing? As oh yeah, well? no, I mean, yeah. So, so you started Matterhorn, and it, you wrote it for how long?
1: Well, I started Matterhorn in the seventies. Got the first draft done and then started writing query letters and getting rejections. So the entire time that I was raising my kids uh, and uh, working in co- corporate life and then I moved into my own consulting business, an international consulting business, uh, I would work on it on, on weekends. I'd work on it on vacations. Getting it better. I mean, the first draft, I didn't deal with racism because I was like, God, I'm from this logging town in Oregon. I mean, racism right. was when the Swedes and Norwegians fight the Finns, you know. So we didn't know. So what do I know about it? But then I went. By by the mid-'80s, I'm going, you can't deal with Vietnam or the 60s if you don't deal with racism. It was part of what's going on. So in, in goes that. So I kept adding and fiddling, and it got – honestly, it got better and better. My characters got deeper because I grew up.
0: Did you have readers at the time? No. It was, nobody who uh, no, it was looking over your no, shoulder no. And,
1: yeah, and I, I, it, it, Dylan Thomas, if I could – I'm misquoting probably, but he said, writing is a – lonely and sullen craft
0: Oh, it certainly <laughs> because is.
1: you're by yourself and you right. really just have to i mean i would sometimes literally go down to a bookstore pick books at random off the shelf and read from the middles of them and say i'm as good as this yeah good. i'm as good as this but boy you have to i mean there were times and i was like are you crazy
0: i mean right. you're, you know if you keep doing the same thing and it doesn't work then you're crazy and for those who don't know what carl what what you did, Carl, is you drew upon your experience in Vietnam because you left your Rhodes Scholarship after a year or so, I after think. After one, one term. After one term and you enlisted. Yeah, well, it wasn't quite like that.
1: It was I, I enlisted just after I got out of high school and I got into a program that only the Marines have called PLC, Platoon Leaders Class. You go to boot camp and if you survive, Then they put you in the Marine Corps Reserve and you go to college as a like I was a Lance Corporal in the Marine Corps Reserve. Then you go back in the summer. So while you were at Yale, I was in the reserves. Yeah. And so that when I got the scholarship, I I wrote the Marines a letter. I didn't think they'd let me go because that was 1967. They were really short of junior officers, infantry. And they said, Great, it's an honor, you know, love, happy to have a Marine at Oxford. We'll get you later. So I went to Oxford, but I felt guilty. I mean, and the war just tore me apart. I mean, it was the war was wrong, but I had we I had, had four, friends. I you had friends that I five serve. five boys from my high school died yeah. in Vietnam. Tiny little school, yeah. and guys that I had gone through boot camp with. They were going over there, and at the same time, it was this the classic two moral goods. Because if you have a military that decides whether the war they're fighting is right or wrong, you have a banana republic. Right. I mean, you swear to uphold the Constitution, and this was a duly elected president, and the president said, "We're going to go fight this war." So, yeah, that's that's good, right? And then yeah. on the other hand, it's like this war doesn't look like
0: World War well, II. Well, you so. were so articulate in the Ken Burns documentary on Vietnam. Yeah. I mean, that, I mean, seeing your uh, see, hearing your voice there was very important for me. Oh, thank you. I'm, yeah. I, I was younger during that period, right. but it affected me greatly as a kid growing up, and to hear you who had served. Yeah, have that understanding that you had was really really important yeah, for so you. many of us. It maybe only took me thirty years to get there,
1: but <laughs> no, I'm sure. I no, can, I knew I knew what I was facing when I when I went. I did. Yeah.
0: I can only imagine. But we're so glad that you took those lines. We're so glad that you did what you did. I mean, you ended up with two remarkable books, um, each of them classics in their own right. Um, what I'd love you to do is if you would select a little passage uh from from deep river so that oh, okay. our listeners will get a sense of what they have in store for them i would love that
1: there, there's a character ilmarie is the older brother and he's he sort of reverberates the magical blacksmith from the call of all ilmarin who builds the magic Sampo, which is this mill that grinds out prosperity and oh. Uh, and he's Aino's older brother. But there's another very important character, Vasutati, who is an a, a incel Indian and a very old woman who's a shaman herself. And she moves Ilmarinen and Ilmeri from traditional, you know, hell, fire and brimstone, ev- Finnish evangelical Lutheranism to a more mystical Christianity. That's kind of his character art. And this is the place where, uh, he first meets Basutadi, and he's leaving his friend Uluko's house, and he's he's borrowed money from Uliko to start his blacksmith business. He said goodbye to Uliko and set out for Ilmahenki. That's his farm. He passed the the grave of Uluko's wife, buried next to a copse of dogwood. Uliko had asked him to read the burial service. The nearest pastor was in Astoria, and although he came often. He couldn't always do so. Just a half a mile from Tapiola, Ilmery passed a huge lightning struck snag, over 20 feet tall, whitened with age and scarred black from fire. Ilmery thought of God's wrath striking down from heaven. Why would God make a man prosperous enough to lend someone money and then take away his wife and baby? And why would he give and then take away ilmery's own baby brother and two sisters? And why was there hell? He thought of burning, screaming with pain forever. How could God be so cruel? But he had sent Jesus to save him, so he wasn't cruel. He was just. He decided to stop thinking because no one should question God. When he reached Ilmahenki, he saw a figure standing on the far bank, barely observable against the wall of the forest that covered the high hills across Deep River to the north of Ilmahenki. It was Vasutati, the name given to the old Indian woman by the Finnish immigrants. It meant auntie basket. Every two or three weeks, Vasutati made the rounds of the farms and the logging camps, selling her hand-woven baskets. She was the last of the Inisal Indians, a small tribe of Chinookan speakers who had lived on Deep River until they were decimated by European diseases. Ilmory hesitated, then raised his hand in a tentative greeting. She stood there for a moment, and then she too slowly raised her hand. It seemed to him that the distance between them, the river itself, shrank to nothing, and he was captured by dark, solemn eyes. Then the woman turned into the forest and disappeared. He continued toward the house in the twilight, puzzling over the incident. In a surge of longing, he imagined a wife coming to the door to greet him he sighed and went in. The house had no curtains on the windows, no cupboards to hold Sunday dinner dishes, and no furniture other than the utilitarian wood chairs. The knitted wool cap that his mother had made him six years earlier hung tattered on the wall. A good wife would have been embarrassed to let him out in public with such a rag on his head. He glanced at the dirt floor, devoid of the ubiquitous rag rugs that Finnish women seemed to turn out in endless profusion. All the while catching up with their neighbors, gossiping or just quietly weaving them before bed by the embers of the evening cooking fire. If he had tossed a pebble in the center of that house,
0: its fall would have echoed off the walls and in his heart for hours. Oh, it's so beautiful, Carl. Thank you so much. You, 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 you transformed this. Store and you transform Miami into another world. <laughs> and I agree with what Johnny Evans said. We all are going to want to go home and get to, get to finish exactly what you started. Carl Melantes, thank you. The book is Deep River. Thanks for being on The Literary Life. Thank you. It's great to be here.